Lesson 1. How Your Predominant Moods Make Your Life. A man on a country road stopped another and said, If I keep walking this direction, how far will I have to go to reach Chicago? If you keep going in the direction you are headed now, it will be about 25,000 miles, the other answered. But if you will turn around and go in the opposite direction, it is about a mile and a half. If you, dear friend, have been wondering why you did not reach the place in life or acquire the things you desired, perhaps you have been expending your energies in exactly the opposite direction from what you should. If you have been getting some of the things you wanted but failed at others, you have been headed right on some and wrong on others. Now, there are certain things inside every one of us that keep turning us, like a weather vane, in certain directions. And those things are our predominant moods. You cannot entertain a certain mood and not act upon it sooner or later, any more than a man walking straight toward a thing could fail to reach it ultimately. The moods that predominate deep, deep inside our hearts are living, vital forces, and they create actualities in our lives which exactly correspond to their own nature. What happens down through the years, in the by and large of a man's life, fits these predominant moods of his just as if they were coats made to order. For that is what the outer conditions of our lives really are garments made by ourselves when we least suspected it, in exact accordance with the pattern we carried in our subconscious minds. Since this is an unchanging law, operating in every one of us in precisely the same way, Whether we recognize it or not, and for ourselves every hour, one of the most important things for any human being to know is how the law works. My first word to you, therefore, is this Take hold of my hand, and we will go over the ground together. I will explain every step of the way as we come to it and make it so clear you will plant your feet solidly on each one till we reach the top. From there, you can see the whole road yourself from the heights. And after that, you will be able to travel it independently to whatever you desire and will, I hope, help many others to find it too. In taking you over this road to your desires, I have but one request to make that is, that you will give your entire attention to each step as we come to it and not keep looking ahead. Wondering what lies farther along. For if you do, you are sure to stumble. Moreover, you will miss the best part of each lesson unless you give your whole mind to it. I saw something once that perfectly illustrated this. It was early morning, following a deep snow in a mountain village. A man and his two little sons came out of the house across from the window where I was sitting and started up the street. Nobody had been out and there were no paths broken. But the father, of course, knew where the sidewalks were and took the lead to break a path, telling the boys to use the steps he had made for them. He was very careful to take short ones so they could follow easily, just as I shall do in this course of study. One of the boys did as directed, planting his little boots straight down into father's steps and kept up with him. But the other boy, though older and supposedly more sensible, kept leaning out on either side, looking ahead to see what was coming next instead of watching where he was going. 
he kept wobbling and falling until he was far behind. In this course of lessons, I will break the trail for you to the land of your dearest, deepest desires, for I have traveled it myself and know where the road lies. Through following this trail, I have left poverty, ill health, unhappiness, and failure far behind me. By following the rules laid down in this course, just as I shall ask you to follow them, I have reached the mountainsides where the things I longed for abide, and you can do the same. I know this because I have pointed out this road to more than 100,000 men and women, and everyone who made even slight efforts to follow it has reported progress that is beautiful to see. The very first thing for you to know as we start out on this journey is that our lives are not just a series of accidental happenings, as we have supposed, but are the outer circumstances built directly or indirectly, innocently, usually unknowingly, but nevertheless inevitably, by groups of inner feelings. These inner feelings constitute our moods. The feeling, not the thought, you have about any given thing or person is your predominant attitude toward that person or thing. This is especially true of those feelings you cannot explain, that don't seem to be based in reason or fact or anything you can lay your hand on, but which just are. These prepare the soil in the garden of your subconscious. Each and every seed brings forth something sooner or later, and that something is always of the nature of the seed. A tomato seed cannot bring forth an American beauty rose. But if you plant rose seeds year in and year out, no matter how poor the soil, you are going to harvest roses sometime. The acts of every person spring from the secret seeds which he has planted or allowed to be planted in his subconscious mind. A man's acts bring the results you see in his life, but the act, in every case, was rooted in a thought or feeling which he could have controlled had he known how. To show you how to select, plant, cultivate, and nurture only those things you want to grow out into the daylight of your life is the aim of this course. You will get a better idea of just how these moods build the realities of your life if you will think of yourself as owning a very powerful canon. This is your own subconscious mind. Now, this canon is different from any you ever saw in real life, in that it is constructed on the boomerang principle. Every shot fired from this queer piece of artillery comes back to you, and it doesn't come back alone. It returns to your feet laden with results, realities, actual occurrences. Whether these actualities are helpful or harmful, destructive or constructive, what you desire or what you despise, depends entirely on the direction in which you keep your cannon pointed most of the time. This direction, or leaning, of your powerful subconscious points to good or evil, health or disease, every hour of your life, according to your predominant moods. The separate thoughts you encourage constitute the ammunition. The subconscious and conscious minds differ in that the subconscious points your cannon in the exact direction of your predominant feelings, while the conscious mind deals in thoughts that fill it until ultimately it explodes. Sometimes it goes off when we least expect it, 
especially when we say and do things that shock ourselves and others, things that are at a variance with all our previous external acts. But these explosions are in accordance with secret thoughts which we stuffed or jammed, repressed, down into the subconscious. The world is full of good and evil. All the things we want and all those we hope to avoid are in it. Those we want lie in the exact opposite direction from those we want to avoid, and all the gradations lie between. I hold it true that thoughts are things, endowed with being, breath, and wings, and that we send them forth to fill the world with good results or ill. That which we call our secret thought speeds to the earth's remotest spot and leaves its blessing or its woes Life tracks behind it as it goes. It is God's law. Remember it in your still chamber as you sit. With thoughts you would not dare have known and yet make comrades when alone. For after you have quite forgot or all outgrown some vanished thought, back to your life to make its home, a dove or raven, it will come. Thoughts follow the law of the universe. Each thing creates its kind, and they speed o'er the track to bring you back whatever went out from your mind. The force that turns your subconscious cannon toward the desirable or undesirable is the inner feeling you maintain concerning what you want. If you build up a constructive mood, your inner forces are turned toward what you desire. If you keep up this mood, nothing on earth can prevent your eventually getting that thing or something better along the same line. But if your mood about the thing you want is one of anxiety lest you won't get it, your great inner forces are turned in the opposite direction, and the fruits brought back from that land will be the ashes of what you desired, the Dead Sea fruit that always grows in the land of fear. Bear in mind that it is not what you say, do, or pretend which turns this powerful cannon on its axis and points it toward that land of desire or the land of despair. It is what you feel. The subconscious is a storehouse of living forces, each and every one of which works its way up out of the darkness of that basement into the light of day by creating the events occurrences, and so-called accidents of our everyday lives. It builds your health or disease, your happiness or unhappiness, your wealth or poverty, your success or failure. It builds with the thought bricks you have piled away down there. It has no materials save those you have stored in it. To see how you have thus been unknowingly and innocently building what you dreaded instead of what you desired, and exactly how to furnish your inner self with just the materials required for building what you want is not only simple, but interesting and fascinating. The world of thought and feeling is a hidden world, but that hidden world is the producer of all things in the external world around us, and especially of our own success or failure. Someone has said, God made the world, but he doesn't make your world. We make our own, and we make it by our predominant moods. We build our future thought by thought, for good or evil, and know it not, yet so the universe was wrought.
Thought is another name for fate. Choose now thy destiny. Do not wait. Knowing love brings love, and hate brings hate. There are no accidents. Everything that happens in our individual world, just as every occurrence in the material universe, is brought about by the operation of law. The person who is constantly meeting unhappiness, poverty, disease, and failure in his life is creating these things for himself. He may be ever so well-meaning. Personal hells, too, are often paved with good intentions. We make or unmake ourselves. In the great subconscious armory, we forge the weapons that destroy us or the tools by which we build palaces of peace, power, and prosperity. No one outside yourself can ruin your life. No one but yourself can make your life successful or happy. Whatever comes to you habitually comes because of your habitual attitudes. Whatever keeps bobbing up in your life constantly is the ripened fruit of the feelings entertained more or less constantly in the subconscious over a long period. You hold the key to every situation. You have within yourself that regenerative and transforming power by which you may make of yourself what you will, the agency by which you can get anything in this world you really want. You are the master of your own life, the maker of your own destiny. No man ever sunk so low that he lost this complete mastery. But when he allows himself to become weak or fearful, he is what the good book calls the foolish master misgoverning his household. To become the wise master of your own future, you must do three things. First, you must recognize that this responsibility is your own and face it instead of seeking, as most people do, to fasten it upon someone else or something else. Second, you must read the lessons in this course carefully and conscientiously. Third, you must not be content simply with knowing that the laws laid down herein are immutable. You must live in accordance with them. Put them to work in your life. Begin at once to apply them in your everyday existence. From the hour you do so, you will note changes coming into your life. At first, they may be so small, you will be inclined to believe they are accidental. But as they continue to happen and increase in importance, you will recognize them for what they are, the fruits of your new moods. And therefore, more and more beautiful things will happen to you as you consciously and expertly apply these scientific principles. If it is difficult for you to see, at first glance, that your environment, your life as a whole, and the sum total of your experiences are the massed results of your own moods, do not resist this great truth or try to deny it. Simply leave it alone for a while. Put it aside and forget it while I direct you on a little sightseeing tour amongst your friends. Anyone that comes into your mind will do as a starting point. You can extend the investigation as far as the list of your friends or acquaintances reach. Everyone, without exception, will illustrate this law. There is the friend, for instance, who is always having something nice happen to her. She isn't the best looking or the most brilliant woman among your acquaintances, by a long way, and she has several drawbacks you know you do not have. 
Yet just one lovely experience after another comes to that woman. Right out of a clear sky, her friends say. And so it seems to the innocent bystander, or to be exact, the ignorant bystander. Why she should have all the good things without half trying for them, while the rest of us who are much better looking and much better educated miss so many of them, is a mystery, they say. Look a little closer. In the light, this great law of moods sheds upon the situation, and the mystery will be solved. You will note that this woman has been in the habit of keeping an uplifted, optimistic attitude toward her future and toward people, pretty much without regard to the actual events of her life. Sometimes, perhaps, she even seemed to you slightly inane, especially if you happen to be one of those over-serious people who take hold of everything with a life-and-death grip. I knew a woman who used to be one of those dead-serious, take-it-hard kind, and I knew her well, for she lived in my skin. That you can stop trying to run the universe and also cure yourself of thinking it is going straight to the bow-wows every time one of your little plans goes awry, I know for a certainty because I have taught that woman how to do it, and I have taught thousands of others. Over yonder is a man who has made and lost several fortunes. Study his real nature, and you will see that every time he loses one, he jumps up as though nothing had happened and goes after another, often making a bigger one than ever. He capitalizes what failure taught him, using it constructively, instead of letting it down him. Such is the history of practically every big moneymaker in the world. Big fortunes are never made by bare facts and acts, but by the main attitudes down inside the person. The money any man makes is the tangible result, the external symbol of internal subconscious moods. There is the woman who is always ill. One ailment after another descends upon her. One week, it is a bad cold. The next, a sick headache the next indigestion, and so on. You never see her that she is not just getting over or just taking down with something. If you have been believing this woman is the victim of fate or bad luck, or that germs just naturally choose her organism out of the entire population as their pet playground, and look with your eyes open, you will see a woman who, no matter what else she does or fails to do, is forever expecting illness, thinking illness, talking illness, preparing to go more than halfway to meet it. Such a one actually often says, in response to your invitation, yes, I'll come, if I'm well. She has allowed herself to become the slave rather than the mistress of her habit mind. Your subconscious is like a garden. You can cultivate it intelligently or you can allow it to run wild. In either case, it will bring forth an exact accordance with the seeds your habit self has been dropping into the soil. A sensible gardener takes care of his plot of ground, keeps the weeds out and carefully plants, waters, cultivates, and nurtures the things he wants, and no others. Thus, and thus only, can you ever produce in your life the things you desire. Certain rules govern the planting, growing, and reaping of different kinds of fruits, and so it is in your own life. The specific rules for growing health, wealth, peace, and achievement, and the general rules for growing anything else you want, 
make up the easy, simple, yet wonderfully helpful lessons in this course. Every thought seed sown or permitted to take root in the mind produces its own harvest. First, that seed produces a tiny sprout that can be easily snipped off if attacked as soon as it appears above the surface. But if watered with further leanings, impulses, and thoughts along the same line, it grows and grows. Sooner or later, it will blossom into an act. Then other acts of a like nature will appear till it is covered with flowers, beautiful ones if the original seed was beautiful, or poisonous ones if the thought was destructive. The act flowers which have sprung from thought seeds produce the fruit we daily see in the form of environment. Unless we take matters into our own hands and prevent it, the seeds of that fruit will fall back again into the soil many times multiplied and bring forth a new and larger crop. No matter what you have been planting in your life garden, and no matter how bitter its fruit, remember you own the garden and you are its only gardener. You can uproot much more easily than you suppose the bad plants that have been growing there, plant new ones of any kind you really want, and reap their lovely harvests more fully and more quickly than you have ever dreamed possible. Nothing is impossible to the great inner subconsciousness of man. Miracles are performed every day in the realm of disease, of business, of bad habits, in the intimate realms of human character, and in the outward world of achievement. The only thing necessary is to learn how, and then do it. Few people change themselves or their lives because they maintain the attitude that it is impossible to change. They keep pointing their cannons in the wrong direction and then lose hope because they accomplish wrong results. Only learn this law of moods and apply it. You will soon see why you have hitherto failed to realize your ambition. No man arrives at the jail or the poorhouse unexpectedly. His friends may be surprised, but he knows he has been traveling toward that place for a long while and that the road was paved by his habitual feelings and moods. A famous nerve specialist once said to me, there are no such things as sudden breakdowns. The victim of nervous prostration or any unexpected giving way has been preparing for and bringing about that very thing for a long while beforehand. No sudden external force, no influence outside himself induces a man to commit a crime save when that external circumstance, that sudden temptation, accords with the thoughts and feelings long encouraged by his inner self. One's sudden acts of goodness or evil merely reveal the accumulated power of tendencies that have been slowly gathering inwardly. The pure in heart cannot indulge in degraded acts, nor can he who does indulge in base thoughts make a practice of uplifting deeds. The feelings each person fosters in his inmost heart write themselves out in his life so plainly that he who runs may read. How many times you have been aware of this with regard to another? In fact, there is not one among your associates or acquaintances whose experiences do not tally with the mental outlooks that have characterized him for years. 
that his inner attitudes have matched these outer manifestations, regardless of all his pretenses to the contrary, has been apparent not only to you, but to others. Recall any person whose friends are shocked to hear that he is a victim of a secret vice. Though he may have taken every precaution to conceal it, though every incident connected with it has been guarded against discovery, though not one overt act has betrayed him, yet you had been realizing for a long while that there was something. What we are does get over, and the feelings we habitually entertain make us what we are. What we really are determines how far and how fast we shall go in the world. There is no escaping the penalty or the profit of our innermost feelings. Then let thy secret thoughts be fair. They have a vital part and share. In making worlds and molding fate, God's system is so intricate. Equally do our secret virtues betray themselves. Though we speak no word, though no opportunities come for expressing to any living person the ideals which dominate us, even strangers see in our faces a radiance that speaks for us. And someday, perhaps after we have ceased to look for it or when we least expect it, the reward will come. That reward will be greater and finer the longer we have waited for it. For the big bank of life pays with compound interest. Our fleeting, transient thoughts, whims, and fancies may be balked at every turn, but our deepest desires are food and fuel unto themselves. The divinity that shapes our ends lies within ourselves and shapes them in exact accordance with our inmost attitudes. The rough hewing we do by means of pretense and sham only hacks the surface. A woman I used to know is a good illustration of the fact that our predominant mood and not our superficial acts brings the results. Good people, deserving people stay poor, she would say, and wicked people become rich and ride in limousines. Look at me. I'm virtuous and hardworking. I pay my bills and do my duty, but I'm not rich and never will be. I have barely enough to get along with. It's entirely unfair. Needless to say, she never became rich. Also, needless to say, she continued to have barely enough to get along with. Life paid her in her own coin, paid her just as she paid others, exactly what was earned, but never a penny over. That habit of never giving one iota more in kind words, love, or money than was in the letter of the law built her life. Not her hard work and virtue, but that inmost attitude manufactured her experiences. The thing it constructed for her was as perfect a materialization of that attitude as a house is of its blueprints. True it is that rich people often have vices, just as this woman her virtues. But the person who makes money cultivates a mood about money, the exact opposite of hers. I shall tell you more about this in a later lesson devoted exclusively to the attainment of prosperity. But for the purposes of this illustration, it is only necessary for you to bring to mind any moneymaker whom you know intimately. Regardless of his virtues or vices, note this. His mental attitude concerning money is one that says, I'm going to make money. On the strength of this inner certainty, he invests money. Let's go gives it a chance to grow. A man's habit of banking his money 
putting it in a safety deposit box or hiding it instead of investing it is always sated by the secret conviction that he is destined to have so little he dare not risk any. Such an attitude also keeps him pinching and scrimping. It leads him the life of a pauper even after he has saved something. His money is useless to him, for since he dare not spend any of it, he is figuratively and literally poverty-stricken. He thinks if he could only look ahead and know how many more years he has to live, he would begin to get some benefit of it. But the same mood paralyzes him. It makes him poor and keeps him poor to the last moment of his life. This man is a wonderful example of the truth that it is not the bare facts, but the inner feelings that create our lives. The facts in this case are that he has money in the bank, but he lives and dies poor just the same because of what went on inside his subconscious mind. Order, not chaos, rules the universe. Law, not accident, lies back of every general condition we have with us. Of all the laws operating in human life, none is more vital than this. Only so far as we acquaint ourselves with it and adapt ourselves to it, shall we ever be healthy, happy, or successful. When we study it, one of the first things we discover is that neither external things, events, nor other people make our lives what they are. Each of us spins his own environment as a spider its web. Our immediate surroundings come directly or indirectly, but nevertheless inevitably, from inside ourselves. The moment we cease looking outside of, away from, beyond, or behind ourselves for the cause of our undesirable financial, physical, intellectual, or material condition, we have taken a long step toward the conditions we desire. The moment we begin to inquire within for the cause of our external conditions, we begin to progress. As we look honestly for their roots in the soil of past thoughts and feelings, long-held resentments, fears, hates, or jealousies, we discover the exact cause of our troubles. From the hour when we begin to reverse these attitudes, to feel courage instead of fear, love instead of hate, forgiveness instead of resentment, the conditions around us begin to reverse themselves, and soon comes a decided change for the better. Start today to improve your own moods. Within a week, you will note that several joys of real importance have come to you. Joys that have been passing you by. Joys you have longed for but kept at a distance through your wrong attitudes of mind and heart. If you adhere to the right attitudes for three months, your friends will begin to exclaim over the beautiful change in you. If you lengthen it to six months, the world will be an entirely different and wonderful place. If you keep it up for a year, not without a single falling from grace, of course, but by getting right up every time you fall down, life will be glorious. In five years, your entire nature, your health, popularity, bank account, everything in your personal world will be made over. The increase, improvement, and expansion of everything in it will be beyond belief. A long-continued attitude of mind, whether it be strong or weak, lovely or evil, invariably creates conditions in conformity with it. In doing so, it develops from stage to stage, like a disease, 
showing the symptoms as it goes along, which are accompaniments of that stage, and passing to others in an orderly and inevitable progress. What you say and do today regarding any particular thing are symptoms showing what stage you have reached in the development of the inner mood regarding that thing. The man who has put evil out of his mind, who forgives and forgets, shows by unmistakable signs that no destructive feeling rankles in his heart. But he who only pretends to have conquered these feelings while secretly nurturing them betrays himself whether he speaks or keeps silent. Speaking of silence, have you noted that there are many sorts of it? There is the silence that is truly golden, the one that is leaden, and many other kinds. But there is no silence that does not talk. What it tells is the mood of the person in question. Many people think to disguise their real feelings by saying nothing with their tongues. They do not realize that man is a creature of law and that every cause brings an effect. One of the greatest of these is that every disturbance taking place within anything in the universe is revealed ultimately by changes that have taken place upon its outer surface. Not only does the general state of a man's mind reveal itself to those who know him, but it stamps itself into his character and thus raises or lowers him to that extent. It either weakens or strengthens him. It hurts or helps him. It stimulates or depresses him for the battle of life. We all face emergencies when they arise, not in accordance with the circumstances of the emergencies themselves, but with the vigor or flabbiness born of our previously indulged moods. The weakest man can train himself to face life and conquer it. Regardless of what your past experiences have been, remember you are not bound by them. They were the outgrowth of the moods which preceded them. To make the future what you wish it to be, to reverse the conditions, you have but to reverse your moods. Just as a thermometer registers changes in the temperature, so do the conditions in your life tell the true story of what was previously your inner temperature. So certain is it that these outer conditions change to match inner ones that no man can help to remain in any high place in the world unless he keep his thoughts and feelings also on a high plane. He may occupy a great office or position of distinction. To retain it, he must not relax, but hold on the high resolves, the ideals and lofty standards on which he dwelt mentally to get there. If he allows himself to sink mentally or spiritually for any appreciable period, he will begin to fall from his pinnacle, at first almost imperceptibly, then obviously, and at last, completely. In a recent article in the Saturday Evening Post entitled, Why Men Break, an anonymous author who is well acquainted with many of the most distinguished men of America referred to the working out of this great law. He told how men of abstemious habits of plain living and high thinking deserted all these after being sent to Washington, D.C., for instance, and how in less than a year, the disintegration was shockingly apparent to their friends. Because we are living organisms possessed of unbelievable power, and because we are never static but always building our tomorrows, we can make any change for the better we truly desire, and we can make it so complete that all who know us will be amazed at the change. Every accomplishment, whether in the business, social, or personal world, 
is the product of habitual trends of thought, reiterated feelings, in other words, of predominant moods. The ignorant, the thoughtless, and especially the indolent are always talking of luck and chance. They see only the effect, not the cause. They see a boyhood friend drive by in a handsome car and say, what a lucky dog. They compare their own financial condition with his and say, but I am so lucky. Why is it that chance never favors me? Instead, they should know there is no such thing as chance in this orderly universe. That the force which keeps millions of Earths, suns, and constellations swinging through illimitable space for unfathomable periods of time without ever an accident does not leave human life to chance. Such a man should be devoting his energies to the study of the laws back of his friend's riches. Then he could make his own to order. I have in mind a well-known actress, a woman who attained fame so early in life that many think she did not earn it. They call her fortunate, say she was born under a lucky star, and so on. But if you will read her life story, you will find that one big idea saturated her mind from the time she was a tiny child. Instead of meeting what we call good luck, she had all kinds of bad luck. Grinding poverty, heart-rendering discouragements, innumerable disappointments. Her father was dead, and she helped support her mother, a brother, and sister, all of whom she loved so dearly it almost broke her heart to see them in need. But she kept that one big idea in front of her mind's eye every hour. She cultivated and clung to the determination that she would win. When things got so dark, she couldn't see even one day ahead, and she could make no progress at all, she hung on to her ideal with all the strength she had. She refused to yield. She refused to give way to the external facts. She turned her eyes inward and looked and looked and looked harder than ever at her great desire. Did it come true? The fame of Mary Pickford is the answer. And while we were on this subject is the best time to speak of another misconception that thousands of people have. They console themselves for their own failures by saying that honor must be bartered if one is to rise to great financial or professional achievements. Quite the contrary is true, and the career of this marvelous Mary proves this also. She has built not alone a famous name, but a beautiful character and retained in the face of world homage a sweet, sincere simplicity. In every human life, there are casual, isolated events, experiences, and happenings. These may be likened to the scraps that fill in the chinks. These casual events may or may not be altogether of your own making, though their effect upon you, which is the important thing, is absolutely of your own making. Then there are the kinds of things that happen to us over and over again. These fall into certain classifications. They consist of certain sorts of things. These, you will find, are always and invariably created by certain long-continued habitual feelings. They match, conform to, and exactly fit these habitual attitudes as a glove fits the hand. Now, these secret feelings are the things which each of us must watch. 
For instead of being inconsequential, as we have often supposed, they are the real builders of our lives. To guard them carefully from the light of day is not enough. We must meet and master them, or they will master us. We must fearlessly inventory our stock of feelings, especially those which are most intense and those which have prevailed in our hearts over long periods. For we shall make no headway in life until we do. Even then, we shall make none unless we apply what we have learned to improve our habitual moods. We shall not find the right path by closing our eyes to the facts. Such a course will certainly lead us to further trouble, exactly as it would a chauffeur who drove with his eyes shut. Constant bumps, jars, wobblings, and ultimate disaster would certainly come to him. This lesson is designed with one end in view, to prepare you to open your eyes to one of the most far-reaching principles in human life, to gently, kindly point out to you the proof, so evident in the lives of others, that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so does he act. As he acts, so does he build habits. And habits, in the final analysis, literally create our lives and all the important things in them. You will note that this famous phrase is, as a man thinketh in his heart. Because the thinking that really makes or unmakes our lives is not done in our heads by our cool, logical reason, but by the subconscious. Now, the subconscious does not really think. It feels. And feeling is a matter more of the heart than the head. As I have already pointed out, it is not what you say or do or pretend or even think now and then that creates a big general condition of good or evil in your life. It is what you feel in your bones, as the saying goes. This saying did not arise by accident. If so, it would have become extinct long ago. It became popular and is used frequently because it exactly expresses what we mean by a deep mood, a feeling that isn't on the surface, that seems to lie in the very marrow of our bones. You hear a man say, there, I told you that awful thing was going to happen to me. I felt it in my bones. Feeling it in his bones, he brought it to pass, just as we all tend to do. A mother of my acquaintance told me once, I don't want my son to marry that girl, yet I just feel in my bones he is going to. Is he especially attentive to her? I asked. No, not yet, but I am so afraid he is going to be. I'm doing and saying everything in my power to prevent it. I've forbidden him to see her, and I cut her whenever I meet her now. I'm so afraid, though. You do not need to be told that the boy did marry the girl. Not because he really wanted to, nor because she specially desired it, but because of the opposition and fear that drove them together. They were divorced within a year to their mutual satisfaction. Many people imagine that they have this feeling in their bones because a thing is bound to happen. They take it as a hunch, a premonition that the thing is destined that it has to come. They say afterwards, it was fate. The opposite is true. You do not have this feeling because the thing is on its way to you and cannot be evaded. But by encouraging the feeling, dwelling on it, and thinking of the calamity as inevitable, 
You yourself bring it to pass by your own acts. The main direction of our acts is in accordance with our real feelings. And the deeper the feelings, the more intensive, extensive, and effective the acts. This is true of all feelings, good or bad. In other words, you don't have a feeling in your bones because a thing is being brought to you by influences outside yourself, but it comes to you because you had the feeling first and then went more than halfway to meet it. If you will remember this great principle and realize that it works both ways, you can bring good unto yourself by entertaining good feelings in your bones just as easily and as surely as you have been bringing the bad. Very few people realize this. They think the only premonitions that come true are the evil ones. That is because it is always easier to drift, to slide downhill, to settle into pessimism. It becomes a habit. Also because the average person is ignorant of the most vital laws of his own nature. Few people have remade their lives to suit themselves because few have taken the time or trouble to learn the simple rules by which anyone can do so. But all who have learned them and then tested them ever so little know that they explain the main general conditions of every person's life, that they always work. You have progressed a long way when you recognize that these deep feelings are the real forces which directly or indirectly create the conditions in your life. But this advance is nothing to that which follows when you take one more step and realize that you and you alone determine what these inner feelings shall be. These feelings build your life, but you build the feelings. You can choose what they shall be exactly as you choose a tailor to make you a suit of clothes. Then you can encourage and discourage them precisely as you do your tailor when you go for fittings. You need not bother about how the details are going to be worked out and accomplished by your inner self any more than you need to hang over your tailor while he cuts and stitches and trims. In fact, such curiosity and fretting will greatly interfere with and delay the working out of your desires just as they would with your tailor. We do not know just how the great subconscious mind produces the finished article we have ordered any more than the layman knows the tricks of the tailor's trade. We only know it does, and this is enough for all practical purposes. One of the easiest ways to test the truth of this, grasp it, and begin to get ready to use it as a tool in your life's workshop is to trace the effect of any definite mood upon yourself. Maybe this attitude is one which originally other people suggested to you. You opened the door of your mind to it and then entertained it in your thoughts, just as you would a friend in your parlor. Say that at breakfast, some member of your family remarked, Mary, dear, you don't look at all well this morning. Are you ill? You weren't ill at all. In fact, quite the contrary. You had arisen feeling it was great to be alive and feel so good but you had done your hair a new way and inadvertently used the talcum instead of your usual pink powder. Oh no, you replied, I never felt better in my life. Isn't it a wonderful morning? On the way to the office, you meet a friend who also notices the effect of the talcum. You look a little pale, Mary, she says. Is it spring fever? No, indeed, you answer. 
I'm very well, thank you. But the tiny thought at the breakfast table was allowed to take root, and already you are not quite as enthusiastic as you were. When you reach the office, those kind of friends who characterize so many offices and who never miss a thing like that exclaim, Why, Mary, for pity's sake, what ails you? You look like a ghost. By noon, you take the boss's advice and go home for the rest of the day. And by four o'clock, that little dab of white talcum has brought you a sure enough, honest-to-goodness headache. On the other hand, the next time you get up feeling a little shaky or headachey, do as a friend of mine does in such cases. First, take special pains with your appearance. This is not absolutely necessary if you are very strong-minded, but in rebuilding your life, as in doing anything else, give yourself every chance. Make it as easy and pleasant for yourself as possible while you go along. This friend of mine is pretty strong-minded herself, but she says that when her acquaintances declare how unusually fine she looks that day, it prevents the right attitude from wobbling. Of course, she does other things besides dress up and take pains with her hair and face. She keeps the door of her mind tight shut every time little old ache comes a-knocking, and she constantly tells herself how good she feels. When she gets to the office, she takes up some matter that calls for real concentration, something that will pull her mind away from herself. By noon, her headache is gone, and she doesn't even know when she missed it. In a later lesson, I will tell you exactly how to cure much more insidious ailments than headaches. And in another, just how to treat your subconscious to induce it to do your hard work easily and quickly. But the above stories will suffice to remind you of similar things in your own experience, which will help you to see that we have a lot to do with what comes to us. To the pessimist, the wrong things are forever happening. To the optimist come continually the right things, the helpful things, the good things. If you are in the pessimist class, you have probably said, it's no job for him to be bright and smiling. I'd be a little merry sunshine myself if some of those nice things would happen to me. And some friend of yours defends you with, poor man, you can't blame him for being a grouch. Why, just one thing after another goes wrong with his plans. It is the long-sustained, persistently encouraged point of view that determines the kinds of things that come your way. Right about face today. Try the optimist's outlook and see. You can sincerely and honestly apply the optimist's methods and become an optimist yourself, no matter how pessimistic you have been up to now. If instead of calling the optimist a poor fool who is jollying himself along, you will let me suggest this little but mighty thought to you. The pessimist sees things at a short range. The optimist at long range. The pessimist sees a limited area of a thing, while the optimist sees it in its entirety. The pessimist sees only a part, that part which is nearest and most immediate. But the optimist sees the whole of that thing, the ultimate, including its significance in his own life. This too shall pass, he says in the hour of sorrow. It doesn't amount to anything anyhow. What do I care, he says when people slander him. The difference between the pessimist and the optimist, someone said once, is that the optimist sees the donut, but the pessimist sees the whole. One thing we know, no pessimist ever built a healthy, 
happy, or helpful life. And smile at him as you will, the optimist does all three. He need not have the most brilliant mind, the best education, or the deepest intellect. He has something better than all of them put together and for the attainment of which all the others exist. Wisdom. Before we go into the moods which are to bring you the specific things you want, do this much for yourself. Look at your secret tendency and find out whether you are predominantly an optimist or predominantly a pessimist. If you are an optimist, so much the better. If you are a pessimist, the very recognition and admission of it to yourself will help you, for it will diagnose part of your case. And diagnosis is the first step toward a cure. The optimist builds for himself a heaven on earth and the pessimist a hell. You take your choice by choosing which one of these moods shall hold sway in your innermost heart, and then by being loyal to that choice, regardless of what happens. For, remember, it is not true that your moods are really made by what happens to you. What happens to you, in the by and large of your life, is manufactured in the back room of your tailor shop by the moods you permit to dwell there. There are two worlds, the seen and the unseen. We think of the seen as the most real, but it is really only the coat worn by the unseen, a coat that changes as the inner world produces happiness or wretchedness, success or failure, health or disease. Cause is always more significant than efforts, for it is the creator of them. Your unseen world is far more significant than your outer, seen world. This personal, unseen world is your own individual domain. No one but yourself can rule it. It is your kingdom, and you are its absolute monarch. You and you alone can decide what this great unseen estate shall produce for you out here in the material, everyday world of reality. You and you alone can give the orders it must obey. It knows no will, no voice, no power, but yours. The wills, voices, suggestions, and power of others can never vitally affect it or sidetrack it, save as you translate these into your language and speak them to your own subconscious mind. It is because of this that all psychologists now declare there is no suggestion save auto-suggestion, that no suggestion made by another can remain in your mind to affect it unless you make it your own and hand it on to your inner consciousness. It is this which makes every suggestion you give yourself so powerful. You give the order. Wherefore, you back up that order with every fiber of your being. Having ordered it, expected it, and worked toward it throughout your organism, it cannot fail to come to pass. This law is operating all the time, whether we recognize it or not. Whatever your moods bend toward, that will you seek, finally find, then touch, and ultimately bring into your life. Whatever you lean away from, ever so slightly, in your secret soul, that will you gradually grow away from. And if the mood of repulsion is continued, finally separate yourself from completely. 
More will be explained to you concerning this latter law in the lesson on environment, but this much here will help to clarify in your mind the truth of this powerful law of moods. Whenever doubt or fear enters into these moods, the force back of your desire, instead of being magnetized to bring you that thing, becomes deadened, neutralized just to that extent. But if fear and doubt are repelled every time they come near you, the drawing power of your desire will ultimately become irresistible. It will become so, not from any mystical, mysterious cause, but because of the nature of man. Whatsoever a man thinks on, that does he become. And as we become, we attain. As we become inwardly larger, the cloak of reality will become larger and more glorious. If we become small, no power on earth can prevent its shrinking to fit us. The thing to do if we would get what we want is not to waste time railing against the imaginary something we call fate, but to create the fates we desire. This we can do by setting to work to change the moods that are operating in our inner world. Our external world will change accordingly. Any predominant mood works itself out into reality by drawing unto itself many apparent outside influences, much as our country in time of war drafts men from everywhere and compels them to come to its aid. This is equally true whether the attitude is destructive or constructive. If destructive, fearful, or anxious, the forces it summons to its aid are destructive. It can call out only its own workers, just as America can call only American soldiers, and Canada, Canadian soldiers. One of the first external manifestations of destructive attitudes will be apparent in your physical health. No person who is depressed, melancholy, worried, or afraid can stay well. He may not become aware of this immediately, but soon certain functions will begin to slip a cog. What these are will depend on which organ or system is his weakest link. One of the next things to appear on the surface as a direct result of any person's destructive moods will be the change in his personal appearance. Voice, movements, gestures, facial expressions, and especially the lines around the mouth and eyes will publish it. This in turn will repel the very men and women he needs to help him till sooner or later he will be compelled to confine himself to association with other fear personalities like himself, all of whom will aggravate his own destructive tendencies by directly or indirectly re-suggesting them to him. Conversely, an uplifted outlook will start instantly to rejuvenating you physically and mentally. It will glow so radiantly in your face and shine so brightly from your entire being that successful, constructive people will be attracted to you, learn to like you, and gladly help you toward what you desire. When you stop to think that everything we get out of life we must get through, from, with, or by other people, you begin to see how important this stage of your progress is. There are no self-made people, really. They are only self-made in the sense that they work to deserve the help of others and, having deserved it, get it. Looked at in the light of experience and actual facts, then, it is no wonder our predominant moods create things all around us in their own image.
They are not confined to any one avenue, but go out into the highways and byways of our immediate and remote environment and bring back whatever they need for their fulfillment. They affect every act and event in our daily lives, these predominant moods of ours. They color and distort, expand or condense all kinds of happenings when we are least aware of it. They construct from within and attract from without. They have not only drawing power, but selective power, these intense feelings of ours, and always their picking and choosing is in accordance with whatever furthers our deepest self-estimates. If the attitude that predominates in your inmost heart is one of certainty that you will get what you want, a thousand silent, invisible forces are set to work inside and outside your own organism to bring it about. Not only will your body do its work more smoothly, but your brain will evolve ways and means undreamed of before for bringing you this thing out into the visible world and straight to you. Fear of any kind is a depressant to both mind and body, while faith stimulates us to attempt and finally accomplish the impossible. Fear and all thoughts of failure register themselves upon us inwardly and outwardly in many ways, one of the most obvious of which is noted when fright instantly drains the blood from a man's face. When it has this effect externally, it is easy to picture its restrictive effect upon the vital inner organs, to each of which an abundant blood supply is absolutely essential to health. Feelings are not feelings alone. They are dynamic forces setting into motion, in accordance with their own nature, the entire organism of a man, paralyzing or expanding it, as the case may be. A feeling of strength not only releases the strength already stored up inside a man's mind and body, but generates more and more as he uses up his supply. It is this which brings the well-known second wind. Within each of us lies the real cause of the general conditions that come to us, physical, financial, professional, personal, and social. We make our own world, our own character, our own habits, our own environment. Since we have made all these, we can unmake them and then remake them to suit ourselves. The moment we recognize this greatest law in human life, we can set about to use it constructively and consciously instead of allowing it to use us destructively and unconsciously as we have been doing in the past. Never forget that whatever you are feeding into the mill of your subconscious in the form of thoughts and feelings will be actualized in some form in the events or environments of your life. Just accepting this one great fact will help you immeasurably, for it will enable you to stop this moment, the building of disease, failure, or despair. If you will pass this knowledge on to others, not by preaching, but simply by handing on this little book, you will strengthen yourself even further by having strengthened them. Our mental attitudes act somewhat like planting plows, going ahead, laying open the soil, and planting therein the seeds that correspond to our general feelings concerning ourselves. Unless you do something to prevent it, your future harvests will be in exact accordance with the planting you have done up to now. But if you will, right now, 
Stop watering them with your thoughts, remarks, and actions, and learn to plow under with new moods. All that have sprouted, you will be ready for a new and better crop. The soil is the same. As the farmer raises corn one year on a certain field and the next year wheat, so you are able to change entirely the fruits you will reap from your great subconscious mind by changing the seeds you plant. In the next lesson, I will show you exactly how to go about it to reseed that illimitable field within yourself by remaking your moods.